Welcome to Good People Talk, the podcast of the Good People Fund. This episode, Ann Bader Martin, the founder and executive director of One Can Help, describes how the organization provides resources to underserved and vulnerable children and families who are involved in the juvenile courts or child welfare agencies in Massachusetts. Resources provided by One Can Help very often tilt the balance toward improved outcomes and positive trajectories. One Can Help is a Good People Fund grantee. For more information, visit goodpeoplefund.org. Here's Anne in conversation with GPF co-founder and executive director, Naomi Eisenberger. Give us an idea of how the idea for One Can Help started. Firstly, thank you very much, Naomi, for having me. And since a lot of uh, the Good People supporters uh, listen to your podcast, I want to also give a great big thank you to them for supporting the good people who are doing the work that people aren't seeing so many times behind the scenes. I think people need to know I'm a juvenile court attorney. I've been an attorney in the field for almost 30 years. And the thing that strikes you when you're in juvenile court is that there's a, there's a problem. Kids and families are in crisis. It's not serious violence. It's not often criminal cases. There's a little bit of criminal cases, and most of that's very minor shoplifting, arguments with a family member, stuff like that. But it's also cases where there's concerns of neglect of children. There's a lot of the opiate, um, the opiate crisis where, you know, a lot of people uh, end up addicted. As parents, they may not be taking um, ideal care of their children. Those end up in this court. That's what juvenile court is. Um, and also cases where children have their own mental health issues. These are the people that are in court concerning behaviors that either child services brings you in for, or the schools bring you for, or the parents bring you in for, or the police. So to be an attorney in this field is to walk in and realize two things. Almost all the children and families in the juvenile court system are poor. They're very low income. They're being brought there because nobody else knows what to do with them which often means that no resources are available to help them, and they're hoping the court can figure that out. And the other thing you realize when you're working as an attorney in the field is that the vast majority of them are of color. So those are two really important factors. So when you are me or any attorney or social worker, I think, that goes into the field, because after all, why do we go into this field? This is not known as a high-income field. You go in because you want to help people. You believe you have a capacity to make a difference and to change lives. And so to go into a system like this feels a little bit like being a doctor and being in a hospital and having people come in in a crisis, but not have medicine to give them. Because the reality is people are desperately needing assistance. People know they need assistance. That's why they've been brought to the court. And then we don't have anything to do for them. All we can do is take a very heavy hammer. We can incarcerate people. We can give people criminal records to penalize them. We can remove children. We can put children in foster care. We can have them adopted. But we don't have any resources available to us in the juvenile court system to actually help. If a family isn't sending their child to school and you find out when you visit them that they don't have heat and getting up in the morning is almost impossible in February in Massachusetts, the first thing that comes into your mind is, Let's turn the heat on, but you can't because that is a money issue. How are you going to do that? We don't have a way to do that. So 
I give an example and I hope I'm not running away with this, but I can't, I have to give you a background to understand why I started this. So many times you're just so frustrated because bad outcomes happen to people because they're not able to pay for some critical resource that, that you know, as an attorney, social worker, human being, just would make such a difference at that moment in time. And that's the one thing we can't do. Putting that aside, you ask me, why did I start this? So now you know my history, you know what it looks like to walk into court, and what I see. And then one day, and I thought, well, how do I do this? What do I do? You know, How do you fix this? How do you take a situation where people look so hopeless, so dejected, so not willing to believe life will ever get any better? Because in many cases, it's often been that way. And then one day, I was in a Dunkin' Donuts with a young teen client who was pregnant. She's of color and a lovely, lovely, lovely girl. This was 2005. And she had moved around between a mother who was now dead, a father who had left and had substance issues. She was living with an elderly grandmother. Her life was not great. She was still in high school. And she was determined to keep this child. When we went to meet at the Dunkin' Donuts to discuss this, because my job as her attorney, I give lectures because how do you not? You know, I'm also a mother. You know, is this really something you think about that you can do? And, you know, you know how will we do this responsibly? But ultimately, my job is to try to help if I can. But she came to this meeting with a magazine and she had cut out, uh, a ripped out a page from the magazine of a stroller that she wanted. She could see herself with the stroller and maybe it was for helping to see who she was going to be with as a mom. And so as we talked about, like, how are you going to get diapers? Where's this baby going to sleep? How are you going to watch this baby every day while you go to school? While we're having this conversation, every few moments, she would put this picture in front of my face and say, do you think there's any way we can get this story? And I kept saying, we'll talk about that some other time. That's not what we're doing now. That's not even for a new baby. That's for later. We need to see how are you going to raise a child? So we were talking. While we were having this conversation, we had, we, we put in some phone calls um, to see if there was a place we might be able to get diapers because that can be an expensive cost. She had a place she could raise the baby. She was going to need a lot of support. While we're having this conversation, I suddenly got tapped on the shoulder. And there was an outstretched arm put in front of me. And a man's voice said, buy her the stroller. I didn't know this man. Turned around and we all started to cry. And I thought then, and, and he, he had a cheap, he provided a check, which was good. He provided mm-hmm. a check for $175 with blank to whom, to whom to pay it for, which we filled in for the stroller. And I thought to myself then, something that had crossed my mind many times. If people could only see who we worked with, if they could only see who I worked with, they would want to help because yep. to meet the people, to see the stories, to hear the past, you just want to help. Many times we as attorneys try to help out of our own pockets, but it's not tenable when you have client after client after client and the items are big. It's tenable when it's a bus fare, one bus fare, but it isn't even tenable when you have a thousand bus fares. You need a system. And I thought people would want to help if they only understood how, but people don't understand this because nobody sees it. Because the real truth about juvenile court is beyond the poverty and who is in the court and demographics involved, is that it's a confidential closed system. No one sees what we're seeing, and there's no way to tell those stories. And so their need is it's as if the need is not out there. It's that old, it's that old story that you remember as a child, perhaps, um, when people would say things like, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Right. I think about that every day because that is my mission in life is to explain why it makes a sound, even if you're not hearing it. That's my job. 
as the ED and as the founder of One Can Help, that's my job. I could not have done it unless I got a group of people together to help me do this, both attorneys and social workers, as well as neighbors and friends who had skills I do not possess. And together, we created this organization. And I could not have done that by myself. No one does this by themselves. You mentioned a little while ago about seeing the face of that young girl and how most people don't get to see the face. I think that that is such an important part of this work. The truth is that behind each one of those needs is an individual person. Can you give us an example of the process, how this all works? Often I think we could have been called or just call us, you know, say something like, who pays for this? Because people, like you say, don't even realize this is a problem. And it's we fill in gaps. We fill in gaps where there isn't any funding. I don't mean to suggest that there's never any funding available to help children and families. There's some funding available for children actually in foster care when they're involved with the Child Protection Agency. But for the most part, there's very little funding out there and many long wait lists, particularly when you're talking for resources. I'm not talking for donated goods, but things that you can't just go pick up at a donation center need money to pay. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. I had, uh, there was a, a mother and child. The child was living in a treatment program because he had been subjected to severe child abuse by, uh, by his father, who no longer was in the picture. But he had done some pretty terrible things with the, to the child. The child had a lot of acting out behaviors. He had to live in a treatment program. The mother had done a lot of domestic violence work to learn herself how to be a stronger person how to move ahead, how to never be susceptible to people who could abuse again. She was very devoted to her son. They needed to do a lot more therapy together, but she wasn't able to get there to the treatment program because the train rides from her home were two and a half hours away. They were very expensive, and she was on an extremely limited budget in public housing. Without her doing these treatments, the child would never be able to go home. And he really wanted to go home. She really wanted him to go home, but they needed to be meeting with a clinician together and talk about behavioral approaches and, and what works at the what works at the center. And for her to demonstrate also for the to Department of Social Services, DCF, which is now called Department of Children and Families, to be able to demonstrate to those social workers as well that mother had learned the tools that they were teaching her if this was going to be successful reunification. Uh, one can help was asked to pay for to pay for train fare. We paid for that. It was about four hundred dollars. We paid for her to have the train fare to be able to go there. She worked on the treatment. She worked. She demonstrated how well she was doing. The child was started to transition home, and they realized we had one other problem, and that is that the child in the program had a special computer that had special activities on there for him to be able to do when he was stressed. And mother did not have a computer. And so another request was made for uh, a laptop that mother could have to help him with the training programs that he needed and the special programs that they needed to buy for it. And one can help pay for that too. Between those two things, the child got home. The child still needed therapy. Life still had its issues, but now the child was no longer in the treatment program. Mother and son were together. 
and he had something to help him with his behaviors. That was what was needed at the time when, when we were involved with that situation. So that's an example by achieving something, which it's not that it's so simple and small and everything's now perfect, but it got them to a stage that without that, nothing could move forward. Right. So they couldn't do the work without that. And that's why we pay for this, because we saw, I saw, we saw that missing needs in the court system and DCF hold people back at critical moments where the whole system sort of shuts down. We can't get anything done. Yeah, you're unless stuck. We achieve, you're... Unless, unless we do this. Right. And it's not fair to the poor children. Sometimes we pay for something that DCF, for example, should be paying for. A child in foster care who, let's say, was in taking, or was another example, was taking dance classes in foster care, and now the child is returning home. The moment the child starts to return home, there is no money to help. And yet, the child loved these dance classes and she wanted to continue them. And going home meant she'd have to stop because mother couldn't afford them. And so we were asked to pay for dance classes to help this child go home and help her transition home and help her feel happy home and, and frankly thrive, right? Exactly. We paid for that too. That not only, you know, helped her go home, but it's it's what we want for all our children. We want to help them, you know, in ways that, that encourage growth and positive development, right? Right. So paid for that. So there's, you know, a lot of examples. Some some things we do actually not only help the child and parent, because by helping parents, we're helping children. Because children want their parents to do well if the parents are motivated. They want to be with their parents. Almost everybody wants that. So in half the cases, we find that the help we provide helps children and families in some way that not only benefits them, but it helps to achieve a, a court goal to, or address a court concern. And half of our requests are needs that just help a child with an opportunity. They're going to, they're to apply to college, to get an ID so they can get a job, to be able to go take a sport or take after school activities or go to camp or... or even summer school. Summer school is not a right. Summer school is something that for most kids, you have mm -hmm. to pay for. And so even if you miss right. school because you were depressed, that doesn't mean you get to, if you're now feeling better in the summer, you don't just get to go to summer school and make up your credits. But we all know that kids that fall behind a grade are much more susceptible to dropping out of school because they're mm -hmm. so embarrassed and dejected that they're no longer with their classmates. I think it's essential to help them as well as like with laptops or whatever, whatever else. Yeah. So every need is different it's because people are so different. And every need is different at that moment. So we don't have a warehouse of what we're stocking. One can help provides assistance usually within one to two days of a request. I know there's a system for these cases. Tell our listeners where these cases come from and how it's actually set up within the one can help structure. I'll try to keep it simple so people can visualize this. We started it with the idea that we could have an online platform and the attorneys and social workers are already there and we have a system to reach them. And as long as they're in the court, we don't have to find the people because they're being brought to the court. So we, so your taxpayer dollars are already paying for the schools, the police, the social workers, the courts to bring these people to court. And then we know there's a real problem. That's why they're there. And then they get the professionals who will work with them. The only thing that's missing is the resource. And so right. we feel that this is the ideal time to ensure while all while all this is going on, that we make it possible to improve lives and, and, and move them forward because that's after all why they're in the system. 
that we should be doing it. It is so obvious that what one can help is doing should be that third leg in every juvenile court system. Yeah, you know, you're you're 100% right. I think the first step is awareness to recognize that this that poverty is the elephant in the courtroom. Yes. Recognize that. That's the first step. And then the problem for busy professionals in the field is that we are overworked. I had 110 cases at one point, you know, I have cut down considerably over the years, but many juvenile court attorneys are very overworked and it can sometimes be hard to do more than just keep your head above water and, you know, just put out fire by fire than to figure out the bigger picture. One extra piece of arsenal that I don't know if I've ever told you, Nambi, but I think maybe I have. And that is that before I was a juvenile court attorney, I was a PTO president. <laughs> why that? Why does that matter? I'll tell you why that matters. Why that matters is because I had a principal, and whenever a child in the school had a problem, the child, um, the family was about to lose their their apartment because they couldn't afford the month that rent. The parent had been sick. The child just didn't have the money for clothes or food or whatever. She had a fund she could tap that more generous, wealthier families had helped her collect. And she could provide funds for that and over and, and deal with that problem at that moment. And I think that was in the back of my mind because government can't do that. Government can't have a discretionary fund. The courts can't have a discretionary fund. It's very hard to have a discretionary fund when you're in these jobs. And so it's hard to visualize. But I think that helped me visualize that, yes, we could do this. A third body had to collect, do that. We had to be that body. So we are, what can help is the connective tissue. We are the organization that with other attorneys and social workers can review applications that the attorneys and social workers themselves put in with a series of questions, understand the need, understand how it will help, understand how we will provide it, what difference it will make. We think that every state does need this, but awareness is the first part of it, recognizing that this is a problem that we can solve. It's not a problem that we just have to live with. It's a problem we can solve and that every state is slightly different. So every state needs a slightly different way to do it. Our goal is to create that awareness, help people start something similar in their own state, because this is a systemic issue. Right. Every state has this problem. And in case anyone is listening from anywhere in the country <laughs> and is interested, go to the website, reach out, Anne at onecanhelp.org. And I'm happy to help sort this, you know, to, to try and encourage groups um, to help start this in their own state. I know that Boston University and American University took on the, the job of evaluating the impact of One Can Help's work. What came from those two studies? What viewers may know about about nonprofits and when you provide help is that some things it's hard to measure, right? When you're dealing with human needs and we provide assistance and I tell you it improved child self-esteem, how do I measure that? You know, how, how do we really measure that impact monetarily, for example? It's, it's hard or improved educational performance. Um, do we do these things or, or improve family um, relationships. These are very, very extremely important, as we all know, in our own lives. But how do you tell, for example, the government that that saved the money that that we created impact? So we know, for example, through our outcome surveys, that 98% of 
attorneys and social workers who apply to us believe that we provided exactly the assistance that they asked for that made a difference to their client. When you're talking about it in terms of how can we explain to a government, for example, what we, what matters to them? Like, are we impactful? Are we able to save money to them? Are we doing something that creates uh, more value? We focused on uh, reducing the need for foster care, reducing the need for lengthy court cases that could be closed if only poverty issues were addressed, mm-hmm. and reducing homelessness. The Boston University study is an especially interesting study, and I don't think there's a lot out there that deal with the social services in this way, because they monetize how much is a day of foster care? How much is a day of court when there is a lawyer for a mother, a father, one for each child, one for the Congress of, of children and families, to name just a few? And having to sit there all morning waiting for a case to happen. So just how many hours is that? Based on that, on the cases where people in the outcome surveys, the attorney and social workers wrote that one can help assistants reduce the need for foster care by providing resources that meant it, the child either didn't need to go into foster care or could leave foster care sooner or could go to a relative so they didn't have to be in foster care or help the family avoid homelessness by being perhaps a uh, an emergency rent or um, help the family in a shelter leave a shelter because they paid the security deposit or the U-Haul truck, something to help the family get out of a shelter and get into housing or paid for uh, something that stopped a court case from needing to continue, like I mentioned before, you know, paying for bed so that my child could go home and the case would be over. They said that we saved the state in one year alone, I believe it's 2019, between nine and $11 million. And yeah. we're a tiny organization. And we yeah. did half the amount of cases at that time that we do now, which which is amazing. And and I'm not going to tell you it's it's a, it's the exact number because we'll never know because we don't have a control group to put it up against. But this was BU's calculation, just looking at how we likely saved money by by extrapolating how much it might have cost otherwise. Very briefly, what kind of what kind of actions can people take? Thank you. I think that, you know, Awareness is the first. Just that if you listen to the audience, if you listen to this podcast, you already have taken major steps. And I thank you tremendously. <laughs> That's the first. Secondly, if you really want to make create impactful change, give of yourself when you can and give of your funds when you can, because that's how we do it. You need the, they need a bus pass. You can't donate a toaster. We need a bus pass. <laughs> it's what does this child need? I'll, I'll end with the story, if, if I may, of a social worker that one day put in an application. And the second I saw the application, I thought, you've got to be kidding. I'm not, we're not going to agree to this. What was it for? It was for, for Lyme disease treatment for a dog. Oh. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I don't think you've heard this one. And I, no. and I was honestly explaining the system to somebody at that moment. And I was showing them what applications came in because every day we get between five and 15 applications as a general rule. And I'm looking and I see this one and I, and I moved to the next one because I didn't know how I was going to explain that. But what was it? It was the dog, was the family was four children, and they had just moved to the grandparents because their parents had died in a car crash. They mm. take their dog with them. The parents, the grandparents didn't have much money, and they had just learned the dog had Lyme disease, and they were going to have to put the dog down because they afford oh. the $389 for the vet bill. And so she applied to One Can Help and explained the, the situation and how it would help. And one can help pay that because that would help the children. And who else does that? 
who else would understand that? But at first, when I said it, you probably thought, are we crazy? But once you understand the story, you realize how important that was. Those children did not need any more loss. Their pet was their connection to their childhood home, their old lives. They needed that dog. So that, that, I think that helps you understand lives are complicated. People are messy. I can't, yes. it's not, we are a mouthful to explain. I'm grateful to anybody trying to figure it out. You know, it, this is, this is why we exist the way we do. It's to provide these resources that otherwise can't be done. It's not simple, but it's well, special. That last story does tell the story. And, and I thank you for sharing it. And, and I thank you for, for the time you've spent this morning. And of course, the amazing work that One Can Help does. And for us, it's a privilege to be able to help you. And thank you. Thank you, Naomi. And thank you to the good people. And thank you to anybody listening. And we'll all just keep doing our part. <laughs>